Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I have a great conversation with Tammy Stronach. She played the childlike empress in The NeverEnding Story. Tammy is an actress, a dancer, and she produces family entertainment content at the Paper Canoe Company. We talk about her journey, and Tammy shares some of her experiences making The NeverEnding Story. Let's get into it. And here we are with Tammy Stronach. Tammy, thanks so much for being on the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast uh, to talk with you about all, all the things you've done uh, over your career. But to be honest, uh, the part of me that never grew up is uh, it's, I'm excited beyond belief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was right of that age. You know, the never ending story was a huge part of my childhood. And obviously, it has since become a, a huge part of popular culture. Um, so I, I'd like to start off the conversation there, uh, talking about your role as the uh, childlike empress in, in NeverEnding Story. Sound good? Yeah, of course. Yeah. What, what were you, what were you um, thinking about for the NeverEnding Story? Oh, so much. So much. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, first off, Acting-wise, um, this was your first gig? I mean, yes and no. It was my first professional gig, but I was one of those kids that was putting on shows, you know, from the minute I came out of the womb and and kind of would force all the adults to sit down and perform skits and uh, force my class to see me do the rendition of the dying swan. And I mean, <laughs> nice. And I was always in um, plays and in dance concerts. So yes and no. And I think, you know, in some ways when I did the film, I didn't really understand the scope of the project. It just seemed like another awesome, cool project I was doing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, as a kid, you just, you, I loved being in imaginary worlds and I was always in some way or other finding ways to get into those. And, and so obviously this, this took that to a much grander scale, but it was an extension of how I like to spend my time. Wow. That's great. And, uh, you're what, 10, 11 years old, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, um, a, I'm born in July. So I started at 10 and then I had my birthday and the second half of the filming, I was 11. So right around there. That's exciting. I was uh, I was a little younger. I think I was around eight, seven or eight. But uh, you know, you never know. How old is <laughs> how old is the childlike empress? You know. Well, she's thousands of years old. <laughs> right. That's why she's not the child empress, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I picked up on that as a kid, but uh, um, such a such an epic role. Yeah, I was so lucky as a little girl to land um, being a part of a story like that and to play a character like that. Um, and I think in, in the same way that you're saying that you see different facets of it as an adult, I, I too, as an adult kind of see 
how rare such a sort of unique role is for a little girl to play. And I really feel lucky that I had the opportunity to to be that kind of character. Yeah, I mean, we're talking 1984, I believe. And uh, your character is uh, one of the strongest characters in the film. She's smart. She she knows what's going on. She's very well-spoken. Um, it, it's funny because I... I started thinking about Stranger Things and the girl yeah. on Stranger Things and, and yeah. putting those together. And uh, you, Do you see that correlation? I do. You know, it's so funny. I was at a, a Comic-Con where I interviewed uh, Millie Bobby Brown. Oh, wow. And I love, I love Stranger Things. I think it's an amazing show. And I think you're right. I think that um, those kinds of slightly otherworldly characters uh, where a little girl has a kind of... Um, sort of really strong leadership role is, is, you know, not necessarily that featured in most films and it's kind of an unusual storyline. And I think it's really fun for, for everyone to kind of see a slightly different kind of hero Mm -hmm. um, and, and the sort of strength inside of a little girl. It's just a cool combination. Very cool. Yeah. Very powerful. Um, so, so do you remember the, uh, the auditioning process? How, how did you uh, get the gig? Were you going to auditions regularly? No, um, I was um, invited to the audition by the casting agent who happened to drop by my acting class because she was friends with my acting teacher. Hmm. And I was around the right age and they were casting in San Francisco. And she said, how would you like to come by an audition for this? And I was in a... Um, traveling theater company that we went around different Bay Area schools and did shows and I was in Winnie the Pooh at the time and my role was Piglet (laughs) and I was like sure I'll come down and audition and it was right after a school show that I had so I showed up with like pig grease like pink makeup all over (laughs) my face (laughs) and I kind of tried to smear it off and um and then I got a call back from her and um she was like, you know, Wolfgang really liked you and we'd like to see you for another audition. But, you know, I, he's, let's not do it in pig makeup this time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was like, okay, okay. She's like, how about, you know, you wear a nice dress to kind of help them see the character. <laughs> <laughs> so we um, kind of uh, decided to try to uh, be a little bit more professional and, show up as requested. And then, um, and then there was a third audition, uh, in Germany. So that one was pretty nerve wracking because we flew all the way to Munich and I knew that it was between me and one other girl. And it was sort of like, you know, a, a big long flight to, to then not, not get it. So there was a little bit of pressure on that third audition for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and did you find out before you flew home? Cause that could be devastating fly home, flight home. Did we just, yeah. Um, my recollection is we, I mean, gosh, you know, I'm 10, but like, I don't think we flew home. I think that there was like a week of pause and then we just signed the contract and went right into filming. Um, oh, wow. it was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because most of it was filmed in Germany. Is that right? Certainly all my sections were, uh, there were some that were filmed in Canada. Um, but uh, but definitely, yeah, my scenes were all at the Bavarian studios in Munich. Wow. Now you mentioned Wolfgang, uh, that's the director, Wolfgang Peterson, uh, very well-known director. He did Das Boot, uh, Enemy Mine, 
uh, outbreak. Um, do you remember your experience? Where obviously you do, but what was yes, yeah. what, what was that like? Uh, you know, as a kid working with someone like that. I loved it. Um, I have to say that I really enjoyed having him as a director because he was um, he treated me as a kid like much more like you would an like an adult. He had a very um, he didn't dumb things down. He didn't talk to me in that voice that adults put on for kids, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> which right. I hate. I hated that. I hated it when adults did that. Yeah. He really just was like, this is what's happening. This is what I need from you. And it was so uh, refreshing as a little kid to have a, an adult treat me like I was, a, you know, a, a, a kind of professional smart player in the game as opposed to, you know, something kind of, um, small and, and unknowing. And so, I mean, in some ways I think people don't want to be rough on kids, but I, I didn't see it that way at all. Like I just loved how, um, real he was with, with us kids. And, and I really appreciated the, um, seriousness with which he talked to me as a kid. I loved it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this isn't a, a movie about kids playing t-ball or anything right. like that. This is uh, it probably fed your character and empowered you. Yeah, and he was really, really good at um, setting up the scene. You know, he would really take time before the camera rolled to just whisper into your ear, like, this is what's happening. This is the moment before, you know, this is what you've been doing up until then. And, and, um, and he had a, a kind of intensity about, um, about him that, um, made it really easy to just believe it. You know, I think a, a good director is so critical to any performance. Mm-hmm. And when you were, you know, on set, um, how believable were the sets? I mean, this was before CG took over the world. It was cuckoo. It was just bananas. I mean, this, it, they built Fantasia. It was all there. Wow. <laughs> like every single room, every single swamp, every single, everything was there. I mean, the studio just went on and on and on. It was like Willy Wonka land. Like you went past the gates into the Bavarian studios and it, you just couldn't see the end of it. It was tent after tent after tent. And in each tent, it housed, you know, one of the scenes. Um, and it, it was just massive. You had to, you know, drive around to get to the different uh, locations. Wow. Yeah, and it, it, it's beautiful on screen. Everything. It, yeah, it was beautiful. It was definitely beautiful in life, too. And for me, you know, there were just so many artists that were a part of that film mask makers and um, makeup designers and costume designers and set designers and puppeteers and puppet makers it was just this amazing um place where so many different kinds of artists not just actors you know but all these sort of visual artists were gathered and um it was super fun it was really like a um uh, Wonderland. And I loved after filming kind of when I had some free time, just wandering into different rooms and looking at the costumes and the masks and Mm -hmm. all the behind the scenes stuff, uh, was really, um, something that I enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the fantasy characters in that film are, are phenomenal. 
I mean, you got the rock biter, you know, you got the, uh, all, all the people, uh, sitting around in your, in yeah. your dance hall or whatever you would call that your throne room. I'm not sure what the, the, right the ivory term tower, is. the ivory tower, <laughs> of course, the ivory tower. Yes. I, I was just trying to think of the interior the ivory tower mezzanine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There we go. Perfect. I'm learning so much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was super impressed as a kid in my, my imagination as a viewer just lit up. I mean, I have probably seen this film a hundred times. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, and I, I'm not alone, obviously. I mean, me and my friends, you know, we could to this day still quote certain things, and it's hilarious. It's, it's, it's a part of uh, so many people's childhood and, and so many people's uh, growing up years. Um, I know. I, I get the most amazing... Um, tweets actually from people who are I mean there's one person that created a picture of the empress with their latte it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen it was so detailed it was really? like this gorgeous I mean this person must be uh, you know some kind of visual artist because it was just uh, like a never-ending story latte but they'd like it, it was like finely finely drawn and incredible tattoos that people send me and drawings that they've made themselves. And I think for me, one of the most exciting things about the film is the way that it um, has been adopted by other people. And then they apply their own creativity to it and they kind of express their own artistic medium through borrowing and using images from it. And I love that. Right. Me too. Uh, with the exception of the two sequels, and I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings, but uh, you're the empress for me. <laughs> you know that. Why would that hurt my feelings? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you love them. You know what happened, uh, I noticed, is the kids that were younger than me that came up on that one prefer yeah. that one. And I say, what are you talking about? Watch, watch the original. But, so that's uh, like that's always the intergenerational fight, right? Yeah, but I mean, as movies go, the original is way better. I'll just put that out there. You don't have to agree with me, but <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. And uh, yeah, you mentioned all the uh, all the props and all the costumes and the characters. Uh, the Luck Dragon, uh, Falcor. It, you know, that's one of the most uh, recognizable uh, creatures out there. Um, it blew my mind as an adult when I found out that the, the voice actor also voiced a lot of the cartoon characters I love, like uh, Skeletor yeah. and, and various yeah. characters on He-Man. Yeah. Did you, as a kid, did you ever walk by a TV when a cartoon was on and say, wait a minute? No, you know, I didn't. I like you. It, that's like a layer you kind of get when you're an adult. I think, you know, in some ways you're, you sort of take everything for face value as a kid. You're like, that's the voice of Falcor. <laughs> you, know? mm -hmm. you don't really. I mean, I didn't entirely understand who who and what everybody else in the film were and what their other roles were. But obviously it assembled some really incredible people. Yeah. Top to bottom from shooting. You know, the soundtrack was a huge hit. Um, and that had kind of a European vibe to it. Um, but it yeah. was still cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the film was really trying to be, um, a European breakthrough. It was the most expensive film that ever produced in Germany at the time. Oh, wow. It was a, a German author, Michael Ende, 
And it was really um, an effort uh, to um, kind of ignite a, a film culture over there that could compete with with Hollywood. I mean, in the end, Wolfgang ended up in Hollywood. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know that it entirely succeeded, but um, it was definitely, um, you know, that was the real, uh, a real push over there to kind of um, bring this sort of very well-known German story uh, into the world arena. And they, they succeeded in that for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, I read that you were a dancer, even even before the uh, the audition for uh, uh, Neverending Story. Yes, ballet was my great love for a very long time, and then I transitioned into modern dance in high school. Um, but yes, I was um, I was you know uh, dancing as much as I could uh, in addition to acting and and singing. Right. Yeah, and it seems like. Uh, Dancing is the direction you you went in more strongly than acting. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, After the film, um, I really loved both art forms a lot, but um, we sort of suddenly uh, kind of got a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain of Hollywood. And I did go down to LA and I did talk to agents and I did get some scripts and I did, you know, some auditions and I did get, you know, offers to be in some other films. Um, but, um, we kind of realized pretty quickly that being an eighties child actor had some downsides in addition to some upsides. Mm -hmm. And, um, my parents were really, um, lovely, lovely people. They really didn't care about the money. They really didn't care about, they just wanted me to be a happy, healthy human being. And there was a lot of concern that, um, the Hollywood machine just might chew us up, that we wouldn't really know how to navigate it with enough grace. Mm -hmm. Um, and I sort of feel in some ways, like for many years, people just looked at me so quizzically, like that's such a crazy decision. Um, but I think that with the Harvey Weinstein and all the kind of stuff that's come out, there mm-hmm. is a little bit more of an understanding that something that can look really glossy and shiny from, you know, a distance when you get up close has, you know, can have some teeth and, and not necessarily be what it appears on the outside. And so I think that what's exciting is that things seem to be changing now in Hollywood. And I have a feeling that those those kids on stranger things that we were talking about earlier. Like, I think there's just much more protections in in place for child actors Mm -hmm. and that the culture is changing and that there is a kind of um, interest in getting more kinds of um, storylines from women behind the camera, women producing, women writing. Um, And I think that that is going to also support a healthier environment for children in the field. Um, so yeah. that's kind of exciting and cool. But um, for me, I really loved dancing and acting. And so after the film, I turned my attention more heavily to dance, which just felt like I could have a private, normal childhood growing up with that. And dancing has, you know, been my great passion forever. So that was um, wonderful. And I came to New York and Um, I went to a dance conservatory and then I worked with many New York companies and had my own company for 20 years. And we performed annually in New York and internationally. And, um, it was really like a family. I was so lucky. I had, you know, a a really beautiful core group of dancers and we made pieces every year. And it was like, um, 
just a, a wonderful, wonderful group of people to spend every day with moving around. Yeah. <laughs> pretty awesome um, way, way to spend your time. Yeah. And I, I imagine if you're uh, dancing, not only dancing, but uh, choreographing uh, your own pieces and your own uh, productions, you, you have a lot more creative control than you would as another child actor or another you know, actors struggling out there. So I could see uh, someone's creativity uh, develops at a, at a different rate going that direction. I mean, that, for me, that, that it was really important to have some creative control over the content that I was making. And um, I felt like I could also choose the people I was collaborating with. So if I was really inspired by a certain composer or a certain artist, I could reach out to them and I could learn from that collaboration. And so there was just a sense that I was driving my own bus creatively mm-hmm. and able to, um, you know, explore things that I found interesting. I mean, I think certainly there's some people in Hollywood that can do that too. And those are the people at the sort of highest levels of the game. And right. that would be an incredible, uh, place to be creatively, um, But um, I think, you know, in some ways, it's funny, I always intended to go back to acting as an adult, Mm -hmm. but I just got so wrapped up in dancing and it was so much fun and it was so fulfilling that I kept on sneaking into plays in New York, kind of on the side. (laughs) And yeah, I was in a theater company for seven years and they, it was, we worked it out so that my dancing schedule worked with their schedule and uh, we did a lot of shows, um, four shows through Soho Rep, um, which is a wonderful downtown theater here in New York, um, and mm-hmm. toured those shows. And um, and that was, again, a company where we would sit around a table and all contribute to the storyline, the, the tone of it, the, the visual world of it. Um, there was a lot of input from the, the company, uh, what kind of play it was going to be. And it was an ensemble cast. And so you got to play many, many roles, like within the same play, you would be four or five different characters and you'd run off stage and have to like really quickly switch costumes <laughs> and then come out with an entirely different accent oh, yeah. and an entirely different like body posture. And it was so much fun. It was just like really, really great. So, um, so I actually was acting the whole time but um I just wasn't acting uh in film or in in you know on in movies um so I really have (laughs) stayed active as an actor and then also in my dance work um I was much more interested in again a European aesthetic and I wonder if the never-ending story influenced my artistic tastes to kind of be curious about what's happening in Europe but I Europe was doing much more dance theater as opposed to pure dance for dance sake, which was much more the American aesthetic. And I was really in love with dance theater, things that sort of would dissolve into a scene and then all of a sudden movement would come back. Um, And so I would, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a wonderful German choreographer called Pina Bausch, who was my absolute favorite choreographer. And she was always a huge source of inspiration. So the work that I did in, in with my company always had uh, narrative elements and little scenes inside of them. So for me, they were never so divided. I don't really feel like I left acting. I feel like I brought acting into my dance world and I acted with this wonderful theater company, but I just did it on stage. Right. Yeah. You know, th- that's interesting you say that because I was going to ask 
You know, a lot of people compare stage acting to uh, film acting. And yeah. I, w- I was going to ask, uh, as a performer, um, what, what is the difference or similarities that you feel while dancing versus making a film? And you're saying you've been able to blend them together. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it kind of funny. I feel like everyone's always trying to define things through dividing them apart. That's true. <laughs> yeah. They put them in boxes. And I think, you know, I mean, I understand that categorization helps to kind of form an, a, form, form a definition. But I think the truth is things tend to be more related and that after you've defined the thing for yourself, it's also useful to then soften the categories and find the things that are similar between them. Mm-hmm. And really the thing, you know, performing is about being 100% present, not being somewhere else thinking about, you know, whatever bills you haven't paid, but being 100% present in the world that you're in and having the kind of focus to fully imagine that you're in that place in time. And that's the same in a dance and in a play and in a film. You know, it's a kind of... Um, requirement to just be fully present and then believe the circumstances that you're in fully commit to whatever you're doing and not feel self-conscious about it not worry about being watched kind of turn that off and just be inside of the gesture as fully as you can so for me the the it's funny like I just don't feel like they're so different mm-hmm. <laughs> they kind of require the same um, ability to suspend your imagination and be present within the thing you're doing and emotionally available to the thing you're doing. Um, That's great. Of course there are differences. I mean, of course there are differences and you have to worry about projecting your voice and have much more vocal warm up for a play because you're trying to reach the back row. And in film, I think you have to be sensitive to the fact that there's close-ups and if your mm-hmm. facial expressions are too big and there's too much tension in the face it's going to read a lot stronger on film than on on stage you know so there's a question of technically making things smaller or bigger according to the format but those to Mm -hmm. me are nuances yeah and even within a film uh you dial it up or dial it down depending on the length of the shot you know yeah yeah absolutely um cool and you you, you blend everything together and it all seems to be coming full circle when I read about what you're up to these days. You're, you're, you're putting, true. using all the tools, all the knowledge, all the experience, and uh, you're creating content, uh, family-friendly content. It's true. It's really funny. It's, it's finally come full circle. I think um, now after having a kid, having a kid kind of makes you relive your own childhood in a way. And, and all the things that you were interested in a kid just become sort of, they start to burn again. You're like, Oh yeah, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And just spending time with my daughter and reading books to her and watching videos with her and listening to, you know, sound recordings with her. I really wanted to be part of the conversation of like what kind of stories we tell our kids. And it just felt really appropriate to shift gears and apply everything that I'd been doing to create family content again. And I started in a family friendly film and it just all sort of felt like, Oh yeah, like this, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, well, there's great, also a- your kid can uh, watch your content. 
it's so great. And we talk about what we're making around the dinner table and she's got all these incredible ideas. We can test things out. I can see her, you know, face kind of thumbs her, her face, like be like, no way. or <laughs> I'm really into this. And, um, and I just think that, you know, in some ways, I think it's really easy to forget how critical stories are to children's development. And I really feel very, very passionate about the fact that, um, stuff we stuff into our kids' brains at this really early age is really, really um, pivotal in creating a foundation for what they imagine is possible and also just how they view, um, you know, what's possible in terms of like it, stories define what's right and wrong for us. Stories Definitely. give us, you know, give us a sense of courage to fight for the things we believe in and and I think it's like the first place where kids test out their emotional muscle. And I can see my daughter, you know, dealing like we, you know, we read stuff about bullying and then she's in school and she has to make decisions and she references stories to kind of help her make good choices about how to not participate in that and how to kind of it's hard being a kid. I mean, it's like Lord of the Flies out there, you know, how do you preserve your sense of values inside these really complicated social circles and how do you not make fun of the person everyone wants to make fun of? And, you know, yeah. how do you, how do you do all that? And I feel like we've really used stories in our house as the, as the place where we can um, test out all those things. And it works, it works really, really well. It's, it's like a very useful and powerful tool. So, you know, I want to, I want to be a part of that because I think that, um, you know, kids are the next generation and they're the ones that are going to inherit all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to have to solve them. And I, I think that in some ways, the power of storytelling to assist in 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 that is underrated. So um, anyway, I would agree. My true sense of, of good and evil came from the uh, programming of the 1980s and, and the films for kids in the 1980s, because often in the 80s, there was the clear bad guy and the clear good guy. And yeah. a lot of the cartoons at that time were even mandated to uh, end each episode uh, with sort of a, a lesson learned. You know? Yeah. So from an yeah. early age, you weigh things out. What would this character do? What? Who am I? Am I the good guy? Am I the bad guy? Absolutely. And I think, you know, stories change over time. And we just did a CD based on the story of uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. And it's a musical journey of that story. Mm -hmm. And I think you know it's a 5000 year old story where um if you really strip it down uh, like I I said I told the story to my daughter and I'm like so then he goes and he steals all the giant stuff and he kills him she's like what you know, like, <laughs> yeah. what kind of story is that <laughs> and I was like huh you know <laughs> and so in our version we gave it a twist and we decided um to give the giant a daughter named Harmony rather than a wife mm. And Jack goes up the beanstalk, and when he meets Harmony, she's been living in this gilded cage, almost like a mobster's daughter or something. She's mm -hmm. surrounded by all this stolen loot. She doesn't have any friends, so it's no none of the stuff matters. And um, and so we made Jack and her sixteen. It's like a like a little bit of a girl meets boy twist. And so they fall in love, and then rather than stealing the giant stuff, he steals the daughter's heart, and they run away together and and make music. That's great. And, you know, I should point out the name of your, your company is the Paper Canoe Company. Yes. 
Yeah, so I, I was fascinated by uh, the way you incorporated uh, not only music into the story of the, the Jack and the Beanstalk, but sort of eras of music. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I wanted to have the album touch on different musical eras that influenced me, basically all the music that I grew up listening to. And so my parents would have their Simon and Garfunkel records playing, and that was always in the house, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then um, and then obviously in the 80s, I was really into Tom Waits. <laughs> nice. And so we made the giant have this very Tom Waitsy sound. And we visited all these different sounds that were important to me and my husband and, and Jacob Silver, who produced the album with us. Um, and it was sort of like a little time capsule that kind of visits all the all the sounds that were around us as we grew up. And I wanted my daughter and I wanted other kids to um, just taste these little tiny worlds um, so that it could, you know, kind of open the door to just a broader musical perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of layers going on here with that project. You know, you got the uh, the musical evolution. You've got the uh, the uh, story that's as old as time, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you're approaching it to uh, kids today. You know, they're able to absorb it. It's fantastic. Thank you. It's been really fun. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, basically paper canoe company is an excuse for, 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 in my opinion, I mean, this, our motto is we want parents to feel like kids and kids to feel like adults. (laughs) So it goes back to that thing of when I was a kid, I really didn't want to be talked down to. I really wanted to be treated as a smart, capable individual. And I wanted the storytelling that I was exposed to, to kind of assume that I was capable of keeping up, you know? And so we want the aesthetic values of what we're doing to be high. And we want to use really capable musicians who aren't necessarily family friendly content musicians are like, you know, amazing musicians. And this just happens to be for families. That's kind of how we are thinking about it because uh, we want the caliber of playing to be, you know, excellent. And, um, Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for parents, I think so many times parents go to kids shows or see kids things. I think to me, there's a lot of exceptions like Pixar. I'm like begging my daughter to see the latest Pixar movie. And I want to <laughs> basically watch it without her. You know, I can't, <laughs> Like, let's go. I've got to see it, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of incredible content that's doing this. Um, and we just want to join join the people that are somehow able to create content that fascinates parents or, you know, mm-hmm. and there's also young adult novels that you start reading with your kid and you're like, I really can't wait to get to bedtime so I can find out what happens next. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. I'm just really curious about that space where a story is good enough to occupy the mind of a two-year-old to a 102-year-old. And, um, and it has layers that, that work for everybody. And, I think sometimes when, again, we go back to that thing of dividing things up into boxes, I think right. you can make content just good for six-year-olds and other content that's just good for adults. And that's perfectly great. I mean, there's space to do both. But I'm really curious about the interstitial space where you kind of dissolve those borders and find find a way to um, to kind of blend it all into one thing. Yeah. You know, it'd be great if uh, that philosophy trickled down into like grade school plays. Uh, yeah, 
it's not much those going be, on for the adults. Those can be really painful. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> no, and, and I feel like the kids are capable of a lot more, actually. You know, like oh, yeah. part of it is like what we expect from kids. And I think kids are really smart. And if you um, set, the, set the bar high for them, they'll get there. You know, that, that in some ways, like we're, we're really um, shortchanging ourselves and them by kind of not allowing things to um, really be as challenging and as stimulating as, as I think, uh, you know, I mean, same thing, like even with the never ending story, like that's a pretty dark story. The swamps of sadness is pretty intense. Oh, like Gamora. You had to bring that you know? up. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, that's like a, that's a, that's a tough story it's for real. a kid to watch. Yeah. I cried. But I think you've got to go down to go up. You know, it's got to, if you want something to be deep, it can't be surface. It's got to have layers. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's useful to, um, to kind of uh, bring those kinds of stories to kids. You're not limiting yourself either. You're using a lot of fun things, a lot of different aspects like they used in Never Ending Story. You know, you got the puppetry. You, you, yeah. you work with stop motion, uh, the music, uh, and yeah, so you also do uh, an educational side to the Paper Canoe Company. I do. Um, I've been a teacher for a really long time. I was a Lincoln Center trained uh, teaching artist where I brought uh, different um, lessons into schools around New York. And we focused on a work of art and how to open doors for kids to feel like that work of art is accessible to them. I think so often, you know, people don't necessarily have the tools to figure out how to make work of art um, resonate for them. And it's not that they can't, but that in some ways it's also a little bit of a, of an education process. It's like going to France. You need a couple of words so that you can say, bonjour, I'd like my croissant, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you just need like a little tiny, tiny way in. And then once the door opens for you, you know, you can really engage with it. And um, and then I became a, a professor of dance at Marymount Manhattan College here in New York. And I was full time. But now that I'm running Paper Canoe, I'm I'm just doing part time there. But teaching is just a really important part of my life. I really care about um, teaching and, and inspiring the next generation to be creative. And so with all of our Paper Canoe projects, I've created companion lesson plans. Um, so you could just enjoy the shows on their own. You could just enjoy the album on their own. But if you wanted to, there is a whole um, series of lesson plans that um, ignite children's creativity and reference the work. But in that referencing, um, kind of make it applicable to them and the things that, that, that they care about and that they might want to build and make. So um, I'm really curious about how to grow that educational side of Paper Canoe's work, because um, I really do think that art has the capacity to empower people and um, and I'm interested in, in sort of all the different ways I might kind of agitate that into being. Well, it is a worthy cause, and I'm glad somebody like you is is up for the challenge. <laughs> and it's fun. I mean, it's fun. Like when you go in to a classroom of kids and you come in with, you know, all kinds of beads and feathers and bobbles and they make their own shakers and they're asked to, you know, make an orchestra with their bodies. They have to airplay all the instruments <laughs> on the CD and make a dance. You know, I mean, yeah. they just, you know, kids, kids kind of... Um, they come alive. And I think so much of our education system, um, because, because things are so underfunded and because those classrooms are so overcrowded, it's just really about keeping everyone quiet enough that it doesn't disintegrate into chaos, which is so understandable. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily, um, spark the most creativity in, in the individuals there. And, you know, we're going to need creative people for, for the future. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, well, we're getting close to the end here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, uh, you know, I'd be kicking myself if I, if I didn't ask you about Moonchild. Yes. Okay. For, for once and for all, maybe, uh, we, we can get the truth. Uh, Bastion uh, needed to save Fantasia by by giving the Empress a new name. Yes. And he runs to the window, and you you're screaming, you're crying, call my name, and he yells out into the rain. Now it's is it Moonchild? It's pizza. Pizza. <laughs> what? Pizza. I'm just, I just, I'm just having fun. Oh. Um, it's, it's absolutely 100% moon child, but he has a little bit of, um, he does it in three syllables. He says moon child. Yeah. So it looks like three syllables, but I was there when that film, uh, where that scene was filmed and Wolfgang asked Barrett if he wanted to come up with his own name. And he sat in the corner for about 10 minutes writing down a variety of different names. And he knew that in the book it was Moonchild. Um, and there's also the reference in the script that he may have sort of given his mother's name, right? right? right. So that's where all the controversy comes from. But I think Wolfgang's um, goal was to obscure the name that he's shouting so that whoever, whatever name you want to give the Empress, mm -hmm. you kind of hear in your own brain. And, you know, that's the sort of breaking of the fourth wall that's constantly going on in the never-ending story. And so can, can that moment not only get Bastion to release his belief and go to the window and just scream a name, but can, in that sort of chaotic moment, can the audience sort of impose whatever name they want to scream out yeah. in their brain. So I think he tried to make it scrambled like that. But in the end, Barrett came back to Wolfgang and said, I'm sticking with Moonchild. And that is what he screams. Very nice. Yeah, he I do remember it was, uh, you know, lightning. So it would also be like dark and then light. So you couldn't always see his mouth during the screen <laughs> as well. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, I mean, that, if I were you, that would be my kid's middle name, but. Moonchild? <laughs> <laughs> That's very, like, 60s. I mean, I kind of yeah. love it, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, uh, is there anything else you want to touch on about paper? No, no, um, no. Thank you so much for having me. And if people want to um, get a hold of me, they can uh, give me a shout out um, at NeverEndingTammy on Twitter and check out um, Paper Canoe Company um, on our website. Just spell out the whole word, company, so papercanoecompany.com. And, um, and thanks so much for having me again. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes, indiefilmgrit.com. Follow us on Twitter at IndieFilmGrit. And subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit? <laughs>